0: You do you. Let TrueGreen do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
1: Let's face it. People have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like.
2: It's a thoughtful way to celebrate their accomplishments and make the occasion even more special. Visit MMS.com to create your own personalized gifts and party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code WONDERY to receive 15% off your next order.
3: This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News travel editor Peter Greenberg.
4: Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, I head back to my alma mater, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, Wisconsin, and one of my favorite cities in the world. I'll speak to another UW grad and YouTube global sensation, Drew Binsky, who's traveled to every country in the world. Yes, he even beat me out, and whose videos are seen by bazillions on his worldview. Then we'll talk history with the CEO of the world-renowned Wisconsin Historical Society, Christian Overland. Here's a surprise. The Society has the largest collection of American history outside the Library of Congress. And then I'll be joined by the longest-serving mayor in the history of Wisconsin's capital city, Paul Sogwin. First up, Drew Binsky. Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
5: Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that.
4: Drew Binsky, how are you, sir?
0: Peter, what, a, what an epic intro. Uh, I really appreciate that. And it looks like we have a lot of connection from Madison to the Philippines. So I'm excited to chat about travel today.
4: Exactly. So let's talk about what happened when you left Wisconsin. I mean, you did you know something that people know, not really often do. You moved to Korea.
0: Yeah. So I actually got the travel bug from studying abroad my junior year in Prague, Czech Republic. And that was really my first time overseas. I'm really I'm really grateful that I, I took a program that was offered through Madison. It was called CIEE. I lived in Prague for four or five months in 2012, exactly 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, that's where I got introduced to new cultures, new experiences, new, you know, I was able to legally drink at 20 years old in Europe. And even back in the States, I couldn't. So it was just an amazing time of my life. And yes, then I taught English in Korea after I graduated uh, in economics from Wisconsin. I moved to a small village 30 miles south of Seoul. And I was the only foreigner in my entire town and uh, had an amazing experience in Korea for two years. And that's really what, what kicked off everything as far as making a living through traveling.
4: And you started your first travel blog, I mean, really, while you were in Korea. The name of that travel blog was called The Hungry Partier, which explains your drinking years in Wisconsin. But I won't <laughs> even go there. Uh, that's, gro- that's grown right now, by the way to over 3.3 million YouTube subscribers. You've done over 990 videos, probably even more between the time I read it and now. Uh, And I mean, I can't even talk about how many videos you've done uh, where you're literally knocking on doors and opening doors all around the world. What what prompted all this?
0: Yeah, so really it was, it's, everything stems to Prague, and that's really my home away from home. And I just spent the whole summer there this last summer. Like Korea was amazing, and I, you know, started the travel blog as you said, which was called TheHungryPartier.com. That ha- that name has evolved into just my name, which is Drubinski, just because it's better to have a, a personal brand, just like you, just like you have, Peter. Um, and so after I left Korea uh, in 2015, I was at a position that I w- had a goal to go to every country in the world. I was at about. 50, and that's when I got in touch with my, my good friend who you know, uh, Lee Abamante, who's still my, one of my best friends to this day, and I, I wanted to beat his record. He finished every country in the world at 31, and at the time he was the youngest American to do it. Yeah, and he, I am and now he's, 31. And,
4: he, and he's been on our show a number of times, yes.
0: Yep, yep, yep. I am now 31, so I'm the age that he was when he finished. And, but I finished uh, my last country with Saudi Arabia, which was exactly a year ago yesterday. I stepped foot in my in my 197th and final country uh, of Saudi Arabia. So I finished at 30, but unfortunately, I did not break the record for the youngest American. I think I'm like the fourth or fifth youngest now. It's so- okay. But whatever. For- it's okay. I'll forget, yeah, forget, it. A- forget about the records. Um, but yeah, so basically from the year 26 until 2022, uh, I was just on the road nonstop traveling. And I met um, my, my girlfriend at the time who's about to be my, my official wife, Deanna. Uh, we met in 2015. And she kind of came along, we were, we were living in Hanoi, Bangkok, Manila. Um, uh, we, we just kind of were traveling around and she inspired me to start making videos and that changed everything when I started making YouTube videos in 2017 and started, you know, sharing the beautiful sides of the world. And uh, yeah, here we are 10 million followers later and uh, still cranking out videos and enjoying everything about it. Now, when you do
4: a video, it's not just, a, it's not a traditional travelogue, is it?
0: No, it's really a deep dive kind of documentary about mostly about culture and humanity, you know, obviously food and nature, all these things are great about travel, but for me, and I'm sure you can realize, uh, you can, you can um, agree is that the people is really what makes travel um, special. You know, I'm heading to New Guinea here pretty soon and uh, West Papua and to visit some tribes. And it's going to be fascinating just to kind of see how, even though we come from different sides of the world, at the end of the day, all humans are the same. And that's the, my, my main through line of what I try to communicate through my stories, whether I'm in Malawi or um, Mauritius or Moscow it doesn't matter where I am it's just trying to really connect with people and share the good side of of humanity so my story to answer your question my stories are like deep dive documentaries about different places through my perspective.
4: And of course, if you're going to if you're going to New Guinea, you'll be hanging out with the mud people. It'll be interesting to hear what what common ground you find. But let's talk about some of those other destinations. When somebody says they've been to 197 countries, that includes a lot of countries that most Americans would never set foot in because of the fear factor. We're talking about, you know, Venezuela, Syria, Pakistan, Libya, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan. You weren't exactly sitting by the pool though, were you? <laughs>
0: A lot of those countries you just named are my favorites, specifically Afghanistan and Iran. I've been to both countries twice, spent a total of six weeks in both countries, and I just have a, a really huge love for, for the culture out there, and um, it really just sits at the center of the world. I mean, it's where everything east meets west. It's, in, it's within a three-hour flight of many, many, many places, and um, a lot of these countries are misconceived. Uh, you can see what's going on with Iran right now. You know, the people are not the same as the government, and I visited Iran during Ramadan the first time. And much to my surprise, about 95% of the people that I interacted with, which was hundreds of Iranians, were not fasting. Um, so it's, it's very different than what we hear about on, on the media. And um, yeah, I, I I have a love for also Venezuela, Syria, Libya, literally all the countries that you just mentioned, Somalia. Um, I, I like to share the other side of the coin because frank, frankly speaking, there's so much good happening in the world and um, the news just focuses on... For the most part, you know, the terrorist attacks and the rapes and the, the murders and all that stuff. So um, I try to be a glimpse of hope for the world. Well, you
4: mentioned something in passing just now that I want to focus on. And that is there are a number of people who have pitched me story ideas about the fact that they've been to every country in the world. And I start to you know do a little deeper dive with them to find out that they jumped off the the boat, touched their foot in the sand, jumped back on the boat and said they were there. That doesn't count. I'm sorry. That just doesn't count you're talking about being in a country at least for six weeks at a time. That does seem to count.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's traveling to every country is extremely subjective. Some people count airports. It's funny. I talk to Lee about this all the time and I was just with him a few weeks ago and it drives us nuts when we hear headlines about someone who one girl went to every country within two years, like she started and two years later she finished every country, which is almost impossible um, with getting visas and all that stuff and just, you know, entering airports and whatnot. But Yeah. I try to spend at least a week, give or take, you know, if you go to the Vatican or Monaco or, or whatever, you know, sometimes you can just pass by, but for a day, but yeah, especially in the quote unquote dangerous countries, or let's say the countries that the U S government gives a level four, level five, do not enter zone. I've spent uh, two weeks in the vast majority of those countries as a minimum. So yeah, I like to really go in there and, and uh, you know, thankfully I have YouTube to be able to document these stories and, They live forever, which is really, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to that I have.
4: For the the sake of our audience, I want to go through, you know, what the State Department says is one, two, three, and four, because it scares everybody for the wrong reasons. Level one is travel with normal caution. I have no idea what that means. The only thing I interpret that to mean is don't trip and fall. Level two (laughs) says travel with increased caution. And for most Americans, that means you're putting plywood up on your windows and you're not going anywhere. Level three is reconsider travel. Now you're in the safe room in the basement. And level four, you're an armed, you know, you're an armed hostage taker in your own house and never leaving town. The bottom line is, if you take a look at where level four has been applied, in about seventy percent of the cases, it's a complete misapplication. They had level yeah. four applications to to places in Mexico that were not unsafe at all, and it, it paints with such a broad brush. And yet, you've been to all the level four destinations because you've been to every destination. So the question I have for you is: in all of your travels, 197 countries. Have you ever felt unsafe?
0: Good question. Um, there's one city in the world that is by far the most dangerous city, and there's not even a second place or third place or fourth place, and that would be Mogadishu, Somalia. You could all, some people might argue that Kabul is pretty dangerous or Tripoli, Libya, but Mogadishu, you, you really cannot leave without four, uh, you know a truck in front of you, a truck behind you with four armored bulletproof vest uh, military officials with huge guns, and they jump out and scout the location before you get out. That's really, and I was there with Lee, to circle back uh, in 2019, right before COVID, so Mogadishu is one place that I felt very unsafe, but um, not really. It's funny; like I'm I'm pretty daredevilish. I will go the extra mile. I will go into places that people say don't go to, and I've never been mugged, kidnapped, pickpocketed, and that might be surprising to many people listening. But I'm I'm generally, you know, and I, and I go with a camera as well, which is in some countries like North Korea or Venezuela or Central African Republic, they don't like being filmed. So, and I'm all, so the answer to your question is aside from Mogadishu, I have not really felt like, Oh my God, I'm going to die. This is crazy. I'm going to get kidnapped.
4: Well, you mentioned North Korea. I've been a couple of times. They, they want to escort you everywhere, right? You're, You're not going by yourself.
0: Yeah. It's a group trip. Uh, were you able to go without being on a guided tour? I was,
4: but I still had a handler.
0: Yeah. That's cool that you went without a guided tour. So yeah, they, they, they watch you. They take you, on the same route of Pyongyang 10 times. I ran in the Pyongyang marathon, which was pretty cool. I ran a half uh, half marathon, but um, yeah, it's, North Korea is fascinating. I can speak Korean cause I lived in South Korea for two years and I can get by. I'm actually going to get Korean food as soon as I hang up the phone. That's my favorite <laughs> cuisine <laughs> for dinner. I would love to talk to you about North Korea. That we could do a whole separate segment on that. But we could. It's, a, it's the most fascinating country and the most isolated country in the world by far.
4: It is. And the one thing that's going to save them, believe it or not, is travel and tourism. So don't think for a minute that little Kim is not having side talks with the Germans, the Spanish, and the Swiss to slowly begin to build his travel and tourism infrastructure. Because at the end of the day, what does North Korea produce that the world consumes? Absolutely nothing unless you're in the market for unreliable scud missiles and his, yeah. his economy is in such a shambles that the only thing that's going to save him is going to be travel and tourism and it really will if it's done right
0: one of the it's th- done right yeah, yeah.
4: go ahead yeah, if it's done right now the other question i've got to ask you is of all the places in the world you've been which one was the most outrageously unaffordable and which was the most inexpensive
0: well angola i'm sure you've heard about that have you been to angola i have yeah Luanda's crazy. Same with Malabo, Equatorial Guinea. There's just all kinds of political stuff and turmoil and economic instability. And it also has to do with the oil crisis. I'm sure you can speak a lot more than me on, on that situation. But, but Malabo, Equatorial Guinea and Luanda, Angola, it's impossible to find a hotel room under 200 bucks. And we're talking like cheap, cheap, cheap. Hotel, like That's like the worst hotel room uh, and, he, and, and, here's the,
4: and here's the irony of Equatorial Guinea. They've got so much oil, but the government is so corrupt that there's an imbalance to the point where it just doesn't, doesn't even make any sense. Um,
0: it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. The, the most expensive visa I ever had to get was Libya. And if you count my traveling to Rome, because uh, that's where I had to apply, and having to wait every day that they told me they were done, and having to extend my hotels and all that, it was $3,500. The actual visa Whoa. itself was 600 yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to fly from Syria to Rome, and they told me I was going to get the visa within 48 hours. So I waited, and it ended up being like eight days. And so I just had to keep extending my hotel. I had to book last-minute flights to um, Tunisia and the, the visa itself and the guided tour. It was just a—it was crazy expensive. Libya, but uh, but no, I mean, there's there's a lot of places that you unexpectedly would be shocked how expensive they are. Well, here's
4: one that's the most inexpensive place, relatively speaking, for me. And that's Turkey. They've devalued the lira so much that you cannot believe the bargains that you get on basic goods and services. I'm talking about a taxi ride or, or groceries or even a restaurant meal. It's unbelievably inexpensive for Americans.
0: Absolutely. I just took my parents there. I'm currently posting stories from Turkey. And I've been at least 10 times. I've road tripped, you know, the center and the south and the, and the east. And I love, love, love that country. And you're right, it's extremely affordable. Um, the lira has actually tanked uh, in the last year or two, but um, it's good for <laughs> it's good for Americans going there to spend dollars. It's terrible for the local economy. Same in the Philippines, the peso used to be fifty pesos was one dollar. It was almost pegged to the dollar. but now it's sixty pesos is a dollar. So we're talking about like almost a fifteen de- percent decrease in the in, in the value of the currency.
4: My thanks to Drew. So tell me, what do you know about Wisconsin? Even more important, what do you know about American history? When you come to Madison, a must-stop is the Wisconsin Historical Society, which can help you in both areas. And it might come as a surprise, but the Society really does have the largest collection of American history outside the Library of Congress. I never leave Madison without learning more. And that's thanks to the Society and Christian Overland.
5: Welcome to Fail Better.
4: Christian, welcome.
6: It's great to be here, Peter.
4: I mean, I've had the opportunity of going inside. I mean, just remarkable stuff there that people don't even think about, right? Because they think Wisconsin, America's dairy land. Okay, cheeseheads, Packers. Okay, we'll go home now. Right.
6: Not not even close. Not even close. In 1846, when we started, uh, there was a great idea of creating this wonderful repository in the Midwest before Wisconsin was a state, uh, when it was all a territory at that point in time. And it was really thinking about how do we build this national archive if you will for the new citizenry so we are have the largest american history collection outside the library of congress that's a wow that is a wow yeah the library is stellar we have the largest newspaper collection in the world uh, and for of, guys
4: like me, I love that.
6: Yeah. yeah. And so, um, and everything from a mass comms collection, the early NBC radio records, all the way through John Chancellor, we're updating that as we go. So as people don't, maybe don't know, uh, he was anchor of um, uh, NBC Nightly News. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
4: but my no, staff doesn't know that. We also
6: yeah. have the largest Hollywood film collection outside of Hollywood. And we partner with the University of Wisconsin-Madison with that.
4: Amazing. Yeah amazing so when i'm
6: ready to give all my records i guess i gotta call you please do our masscom collections you'll be joining a a lot of great journalists from newsweek time correspondents of course to arlie Shart, who was a time correspondent during the civil uh, rights movement Uh, and his archive is here well as well
4: well my, my claim to fame in terms of a piece that i i relish is uh i have the original poster of the otis redding concert that never
6: happened Oh, outstanding. Yeah, no, Otis died. He died in Madison. there here, yeah. He, uh,
4: there was, a, there was a, a group of people who started a, a, a place, an old loft called The Factory, and they got all their money together just to get the building. And then in order to pay everybody back, they booked Otis Redding, and they took all this money in for tickets, and they sold out. And the day he was going to perform, his plane crashes in Lake Monona. Mendo- Lake Monona, Lake Manona, right. Lake Monona. That's correct. And obviously that was the end of The Factory. It never happened. And I and I have the poster for that, but the interesting thing was, you know what the opening act was? No, I don't. I'm not making this up. The Grim Reapers. Oh no. <laughs> that was the opening act for Otis Redding.
6: Uh, so, so much. That's of that. a great piece of history you have.
4: It is, but I mean, but there's so much of stuff that's happened in Wisconsin. Most recently, when when you go back. You know, your artifacts go back 12,000 years.
6: That's correct. Think we, about that, 12,000, 12,000 years. 12,000 years. We document uh, the sovereign nations that are here today and all the way back to 12,000 sovereign years ago. Sovereign Indian we, nations. That's correct. A lot of people don't know it, but these are sovereign independent nations.
4: And by the way, we're not just talking about Menominee. We're t- there, there are, I think, of 10 or 11 different nations.
6: There's 11 that are recognized by the you See, BIA, I, I got it. There you go. Plus we have um, the Brotherton, too. So there's 12 that are uh, inside of Wisconsin. But the amazing thing about it is uh Ojibwe bands you know from the chippewa lake superior bands but also we have the ho-chunk uh you know everything from stockbridge muncie the pottawatomie see it's most truly people think, rich they, they hear
4: ho-chunk and they think oh we're going to go to a casino
6: no 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 this is the, the ho-chunk this is their ancestral land uh, the term de joe describes this land in madison that's four lakes and so Uh, This is where they started and their ancestors started. And we actually found a couple of canoes that go back to their heritage. This is recent. Recent. Last year, we found a canoe from the year 800 in Lake Mendota, a dugout How did you find it? Well, actually, we have maritime underwater archaeologists. We have a, a huge group of people that, you know, most of their work is in Lake Michigan or Lake Superior and shipwrecks. But on a day off, they were uh, going through the Lake Mendota on one of those water scooters, if you will. They're like a little James Bond unit that pulls you underwater. They were chasing fish, and Tammy Thompson, one of our um, underwater archaeologists, looked and down and saw this edge of a turning piece of wood. And she thought, what, could that be a dugout canoe? And it turned out to be a 16-foot white oak dugout canoe made out of wood from the year 800. And it had been preserved? Yes. And in, coming out of the clay bed of the bottom, um, you know, the landscape has been well, washed you know, away by what's, boats. What's
4: interesting to me about that is I go back to a, a, phenom- a phenomenal story in Stockholm, Sweden, about the Wassa. And the wasa, when Sweden had an armada... Mm-hmm. It was, one of the, it was the biggest ship ever built. And on the day it was going to be launched, with a full complement of crew and munitions and food, to, to be the flagship of the Swedish Navy, everybody went down to the shore to watch it be launched. It wasn't a pretty well-designed ship. It was a little too top-heavy. And as it hit the water, a big gust of wind came up. It capsized and sank. This is like in the 1600s. And it stayed there. Yep. And in 1956... It suddenly dawned on somebody that there's a ship down here and they went down and the actual uh, purity of the water in the harbor in stockholm was so good it had all been preserved even the food see what they did was they realized that they if they just raised it it would oxidize would complete
6: right that's so true right so they built go away
4: so they built a museum over the ship right with complete oxidizers and, and, and uh, humidifiers and special resin blowers, and then they raised the ship intact into the museum and closed it.
6: Isn't that awesome?
4: And if you go there now, you cannot believe what they've been able to maintain. Yeah, so when very you special found, experience. Right, so the question that I have is, once she figured out what this was, how'd you get it out without, without losing it?
6: So it's a great question because, you know, first of all, we thought it was maybe about 100 years old. Carbon testing, and that's when you can actually carbon date something, um, figuring out how old it is by carbon-14 changes to the next carbon when it begins the end of its life. So we dated it to the year 800, and it just our mouths dropped. Like, how can that be? Wood lasting that long. But it was truly inside clay, and it was just becoming unearthed. So to your point— so we, it had been preserved by the clay. Exactly. And sunlight had not hit it yet. It was starting to degrade on one of the tips. So we started working with the Ho-Chunk back then last year to actually, should we recover it? And they wanted to recover it as well. So we collaborated to do that. All
4: right, so how did you do it though?
6: Well, actually going down and unearthing it with these kind of suction uh hoses that actually pull very the gent- clay very, very gently, gently. It took about a week to actually pull the earth away and then it took about four hours to lift it up and bring it to shore we have it in water right now distilled water and ionized water and then slowly we're rotating this uh, solution called peg glycol through it to stabilize it because to your point the only thing that's holding this wood structure together is water right now so we're going to replace that and then this year same diver she found another canoe it's extraordinary Three thousand years old. That's like winning the lottery twice. I'm a little worried about this. Yeah, but yeah. but think about that. You were we were talking about the Ho Chunk earlier. They have an oral tradition of their language because they've been in the driftless region, and many people may not know what that what that is in Wisconsin. Tell
4: everybody what the driftless region is.
6: In it's Wisconsin. where the glaciers didn't go. They went around that area, near the Mississippi River Valley, all the way up close to Madison here. And so the Ho Chunk have lived in in their ancestors here for twelve thousand years. So their language goes back to that time. So their history comes from that time three thousand year old canoe was raised just about a month ago with the ho-chunk and this proves their oral history what's great about it is this gives evidence to all the stories that they've had in oral history now this canoe being preserved the same way now exactly in the same container too really two canoes okay so a thousand years when apart. will the public be able to see this The public's going to be able to see this. It's going to take about three years to conserve them. We're building a history center in downtown Madison. It's going to open up in 2026, and that's when they'll go in.
4: Wow. And they're only just 16 feet.
6: Um, Well, they're 16 feet long, and they were in 30 feet of water. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And one of them actually had fishing net weights in them, so artifacts, rocks that were chiseled. Then the rocks were used to be tied around ropes and then uh, anchored a fishing net with gourds on top. And that's how they caught fish. That's another thing that has never been found inland in this area of the Great Lakes. And so this is documenting fishing, too. So think about this. 3,000 years of canoe culture. People know what canoes are today. They're on the lake. There's a couple on... Um, behind us and people can see them and when they come into Lake Mendota on a tour they can get in a canoe and you can do it just like the Ho-Chunk did 3,000 years ago.
4: Amazing. And probably have less chance of catching a fish.
6: <laughs> Who knows? There may have been less fish or more fish back then. We don't know. <laughs> Something tells you they had more fish back then. You know that to be true. Oh, I think there were a lot of fish back then. Uh, Some very big fish. Yes, exactly. That roamed the land. <laughs> That's roamed the land very <laughs> <pretty> much so.
4: <laughs> but The building is open to the public.
6: Building's open to the public. Um, People can actually come in to the headquarters today and they can request to see things.
4: My thanks to Christian. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I truly became of age in Madison, Wisconsin, when I was a student there. The same can be said of my next guest, who I've known since my student days. Again, if truth be told, I struggled to graduate, then went on to become a correspondent for Newsweek. He went on to be mayor of Madison, not once, but multiple times, and no one knows Madison like Mayor Paul Soglin. Mr. Soglin, welcome back.
3: Peter, good to see you. It's been over fifty years. <laughs> Thank you for making me <laughs> check into
4: a home. Uh, but what's what's interesting about about your story, Paul, is about really reflects on Madison, and that is once you're here, you don't leave. You stay. Uh, it's it's a city that is manageable, it is a city that's beautiful, it's a city where you can actually breathe, you can actually uh, you know, take stock of your life um, and you can also see it grow. Peter,
3: interesting, when you and I were students here, the population was probably about 165, 170,000. It's now about 260,000. And, yes, one of the things that happens here in Madison is a lot of folks uh, come here to go to school and either never leave or, if they do leave, return within 5, 10, 15 years, uh, deciding that this is, this is the kind of place where they want to live, they want to raise a family, uh, and, and they want to work. And it's uh, – Madison's got a lot of – that lends itself of a big city, but uh, we're very country in some ways.
4: Now, you were an out-of-stater. You came from, from Illinois. Yep. And then you came here to go to school.
3: Came here to go to school. That was a 10-year project, <laughs> uh, four years undergraduate, four gra- uh, three graduate, and three law school. And, yeah, and then within the next year, became mayor. But uh, there, there are just so many of our, our contemporaries and, and since that, other generations um, have hooked on to major companies that are here, like American Family Insurance, Epic uh, Systems, the, the electronic uh, uh, health uh, uh, company. Uh, and there's great jobs in the public sector.
4: And if truth be told, and I hope you'll let me tell this story, uh, when you were on the city council, uh, we had a small little problem here in Madison called the Mifflin Street Block Party, and heads were beaten. People were arrested, uh, you included, Um, and and I remember they brought in barbers from all around the state. They were determined that anybody with long hair was not going to have long hair for long, and uh, people got their heads shaved while they were in prison. And then you came out, if I remember correctly, and said, okay, you know what, I'm going to run for mayor. Enough is enough. And you won.
3: Well, there was a four-year period in between the haircut and winning the the mayor's race. Yeah, but you won. But yes, yes, I did.
4: And uh, the mayor that uh, was here is no longer there and no longer with us. But the point is, it marked a turning point in how people were looking at Madison. Uh, We we sort of came of age with you as the mayor.
3: Well, one of the things that I, I think was very critical that we did and it's one of the reasons Madison is Madison today, is that we had an agenda of how we wanted to make the city better, dealing with issues related to poverty, dealing with issues of disparity. And while we pushed forward, we always made sure that we had a political base and that we had people uh, supporting us who, in effect, were making the trip with us. And so Madison, let's go, let's go back to, to the 60s and, and move forward to today. Uh, outside of uh, the south, the southwest, if you deal with the old rust belt, the old snow belt, Madison is one of the only two cities that has really appreciated in size and grown in that period of time. Uh, the other being Columbus, Ohio, in a way Columbus cheated because uh, they annexed so much uh, uh, contiguous property. But that's that's one thing, is, is the growth outside of, of the, the sand states and, and, the, and the West. The other thing is we were, as conservative a city as any midwestern city in those days uh in the decade or two prior to my election uh half of the mayors in that period were uh republicans
4: not democrats and then came the vietnam war
3: the war in vietnam changed the dynamic of the city now you think of wisconsin you think of progressives you think of bob lafollette and 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 there's always had always had been a very strong peace movement in Wisconsin and particularly in in Madison probably Madison and Berkeley were, were the two cities with major universities that were on the, the leading edge of, of opposition to the war in Vietnam uh, our representative in Congress at that point Bob Kamar yeah. was one of the early outspoken critics of the war and one of the things that was was so important is that it was not just students it started with students in October of 63. That's a month before President Kennedy was assassinated. That was the first big rally against the war. I think it was October 17, 1963. But it grew in, in the religious community. It grew among World War II veterans. And there, there was something going on here, which was eventually to catch up in the whole rest of the country, which was to question authority, to question the truth of what we were being told about Vietnam. I think it's very interesting that one of the strongest elements of what our nation has done to recognize veterans from that era started here in Madison. Uh, Vets House was set up by a group of Vets for Peace, uh, a guy named Doug Bradley, who has written some fantastic books uh, about the war experience. And that questioning and that concern among veterans, uh, I I think, had a lot to do with the character of of the community.
4: And, of course, it wasn't just the war in Vietnam or the war against the war in Vietnam. It was also the war for the environment. Madison was always on the cutting edge. I go back to remember uh, April of 1970, Earth Day, the very first Earth Day. I mean, Madison was like leading edge.
3: Well, Gaylord Nelson, being from Wisconsin, spent that whole week going around the country. And on what we'd call the eve, April 21st of 1970, uh, the, the major rally uh, took place at the Stock Pavilion on the university campus. I was actually honored to uh, be one of the speakers invited by the senator. And that was the, the kickoff for, for Earth Day. Uh, It led to a strong environmental movement here in in, uh, not just Madison, but in the county and and the state.
4: Which extends till today.
3: Extends till today. We see it uh, particularly, you know, nationally as we're dealing and grappling with with climate change and some of the things that uh, are taking place, Madison businesses, trying to, you know, recycle gray water, uh... Extensive use of solar is growing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's beginning to have an impact.
4: I see it. And, of course, Madison also happens to be, whether or not notwithstanding, one of the biggest bicycle cities in America.
3: We are one of just a couple of uh, cities that are platinum. And I think we're the only platinum city that's got... What do you got, mean by platinum? Uh... There's a National Biking uh, Association that rates cities, <laughs> and uh, I think there's only five or six cities in the U.S. that are platinum. Madison's one of them, and what's special about that is we're the only one of those platinum cities that has such a horrible winter, <laughs> which for any bicyclist is, is, is a challenge to contend with.
4: Although people have been known to bicycle on the frozen lake.
3: Oh, Listen, uh, and I got in a lot of trouble for some of my sarcasm about this, but, uh, you know, when it's the second or third day of a blizzard and you've got six or eight inches of uh, packed snow on the city streets that uh, you can't remove because the temperatures have dropped, not below uh, freezing, but below zero, and people are out there on their fat, tired bicycles and their chains, (laughs) you just have to wonder about... I'll say it again, the sanity of of some of our neighbors.
4: I didn't even know they made chains for bicycles.
3: Uh, Whatever you need. Have you seen, uh, and this is not not new, have you seen the gloves that are basically built into the handlebars? So you've got the gloves attached to the handlebars and you just slip your hands in and uh, have easy access uh, to changing your gears and uh, braking.
4: Oh, boy. <laughs> I think about that and think just nothing but orthopedic surgery. I, I, well, you be should, on, be,
3: you I, should be thinking about helmets. You should be thinking about uh, goggles similar to what somebody would wear skiing uh,
4: and a lot of padding. Right. And both of us are at an age where we're probably not going to be doing that.
3: I am not a winter rider.
4: I am not a winter rider <laughs> either. But I am a summer rider. And in Madison, Wisconsin, that is the nirvana.
3: But the, the beauty of it is this, and, and you've had on a previous uh, guest uh, talked a little bit about the driftless Region, region. So you can leave downtown Madison and be 15 and 20 minutes away from the rural countryside and really challenging hills if you head south and southwest into the unglaciated areas.
4: My thanks to Paul, to Drew Binsky, and to Christian Overland, and my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, you already know what to do. Just log on to petergreenberg.com.
3: The Ion Travel podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit PeterGreenberg.com. Eye on Travel is a production of CBS News Radio.
2: It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning, multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money
5: Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery
6: app. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus.